Who knows our text for this morning? Oh. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. test. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But in order to maintain the context, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Let's pray. My Father, this is a magnificent portion of Scripture much here for us to understand, we ask, therefore, as we give our attention to a portion of it, that you would enable us to understand and appreciate why you have given it, and in that, Lord, to, uh, uh, to praise you and to be edified by it in a way that would bring you glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mount Whitney in California is the, uh, the highest point uh, in the lower 48 states uh, at 14,495 feet. Uh, from the top, uh, one has a, a magnificent view of both the Mojave Desert and the uh, Sierra Nevada Range. Uh, and uh, the air is, uh, is, well, sort of thin and rarefied at almost 15,000 feet. Uh, the lakes are uh, turquoise and indigo colored. Uh, they're absolutely gorgeous. And yet, only 80 miles to the southeast is Death Valley, the hottest place in the United States, with a temperature of 134 degrees in the shade. And it is also the lowest point in the United States at 280 feet below sea level. And you have a magnificent contrast here. On the one hand, at Mount Whitney, you're, you almost feel as though everywhere you can look out and you can just see the whole world lying beneath you. It's beautiful. It's cool. It's pristine. But you get down to Death Valley and you feel like it's hot. It's oppressive. 
and everything else, the rest of the world is up. It's out there. It's this incredible picture of contrasts, which is precisely what Paul gives us in this passage. It is a magnificent picture of contrasts. Because what you see is, in these first three verses, he really sort of begins in the death valley of the soul, if you will. Talks about the fact that we're dead in transgressions and sins and all this other stuff. But then in verses 4 through 10, he just launches into this magnificent picture of the heights and the glory of God's grace in person. It's really a, it's, it's, it's an, a striking thing. Now this passage, verses 1 through 10, is once again one of Paul's uh, sentences. It is a single sentence in Greek. Right? And you notice that as we read it, of course, in English we put lots of uh, sentences in here, but in Greek it's one sentence. And that's significant. Because if you read it in English, well, you, every sentence has a subject and a verb. Well, Greek sentences have a subject and a verb too, but the subject does not come until verse 4. The subject is God. God. The verb doesn't come until verse 5. And the verb is that he made us alive. And so if you want to look at this, this long sentence, the core of it is that God made us alive by joining us to Jesus Christ and thereby saved us from what was killing us. That is the core sentence. Every other clause just sort of hangs off that central sentence to either describe the misery of what it means for us to be outside of Christ and dead in our trespasses and sins, or to be the recipients of this incredible grace of God that has redeemed us and set us free to, to be his workmanship and to go and accomplish good things in his name. Now Paul's point here Paul's point is that salvation is the result of God's sovereign initiative and not a result of any achievement of our own. That is his main point. And what he does is he begins by demonstrating the absolute necessity of that. And he basically says it in three ways. And he sort of, and in some ways it kind of repeats itself, but there's, there's a logical relationship here. He says, first... He so says, before you were converted, he said, he says, you were dead. Spiritually dead. And because you were spiritually dead, you lived a certain way. He says, you, really, you walked after the ways of this world. You walked in a manner that was consistent with the temptations and the evil of Satan. And he says, and the reason for all of this is because you were born that way. It is your very nature, right out of the womb, to be that. And it's inescapable. And it's because of that complete and total spiritual inability that God had to act. If any person was to be saved, God had to act first and demonstrate the initiative. That's really what this passage is all about. And so this morning, we're going to give our attention to, well, the bad news. What we were before God 
had mercy on us. Now, it's, it's a good thing to explore. It's not meant to make us feel bad about ourselves. And if you do feel bad about yourself, there's something wrong with your understanding about why he promotes it. Because the simple fact of the matter is, is that if you're going to appreciate the glories and the magnificence of the salvation that is yours, you need to first appreciate what you were saved out of, what your condition really was, whether or not you experience the fullness of it or you can remember it is immaterial. What Paul says here is true of every single person before God saved them and is still true of those who are not yet saved. And the reason that this is so important to us is that we can often fall into a certain sort of well, spiritual lethargy, if you will, a spiritual listlessness in which uh, the, the joys of our salvation just become less and less important. You know, we just kind of, you know, hold our own and we, you know, do the routine stuff. But, but any real joy of our salvation, any real spiritual vitality, any real excitement about what God has done for us, it's just sort of like in the past somewhere. We just sort of go along. But it's revisiting, revisiting a text like this that once again forces us to face the magnificence of what Paul is going to follow this with in verses 4 through 10. So, risking the fact that you may get depressed in these next few minutes, let me remind you it's not to depress you and it's to excite you about what God has loosed you from or can loose you from. Paul begins in verse 1 by saying that we were spiritually dead before our conversion. Kent Hughes uh, says that he has a a friend of his, a pastoral colleague, who when he was in seminary uh, worked in a mortuary. And he was working around there one night and uh, he happened to go up to the mortuary chapel and saw a really strange sight. He saw a casket up front, but for some reason the, the lid of the casket was open. And he recognized that there was a dead body in there. And so for some reason, who knows what was going through the man's mind, he got down and he crawled up the center aisle of the chapel. Nobody could see him, but he crawled real low and real slow until he got right up by the, right up by the casket. And then he just kind of lifted up until he just saw the tip of the nose of the corpse, and he went, boom! <laughs> and the report was that the corpse didn't move, <laughs> didn't blink, nothing. Of course, you wouldn't expect it to, would you? Oh, it's a dead man. He can't respond. And that is exactly Paul's point. Before our conversion, we were spiritually dead. Physically alive, yes. We're all physically alive, but we were spiritually dead. Completely and absolutely unable to respond to or have a relationship with God. Now, not everybody believes that that's the case. Okay? There have traditionally been three views for, uh, for man's nature. The first is that uh, man's nature is basically okay, right? 
People think that, well, this is just the way it is. I'm okay. You're okay. Everybody's okay. Uh, you hear people talking all the time about their spirituality. And if you've, uh, if you're, if you've not heard it recently, just go down to uh, Greenfield's Market and uh, you'll hear some. There's lots of places around that you can hear it. There are many people who really believe that this is just the way it is. I'm fine. And I'm spiritual. And that's the way it is. The second view is that man really isn't okay. That there is something wrong. We're, we're not quite sure what it is, but we're sure we can fix it with education or more self-esteem. Okay? You just, you just get a little bit more crammed into our heads or make us feel a little bit more fuzzy about ourselves. And, well, then we're going to get it right. And then we'll probably have some sort of spiritual nature about ourselves. Now, Paul comes up with a third alternative, which is not particularly popular, but it happens to be the biblical view. And that is that man is actually not okay, but that he's not even sick. Not even sick unto death. But he's dead from the get-go. Absolutely dead. Spiritually dead. It's like a spiritual corpse. Now, I don't know if you've... Uh, anybody here seen Zombieland? It's a classic. Okay. Zombieland is a classic because it really does explain exactly what he's talking about here. If you don't know what a zombie is, let me, let me edify you, okay? A zombie is a dead person that walks around, okay? They don't really know they're dead, okay? To make matters worse, they're decaying and rotting. Okay, there, it, it's, it's a rather gruesome sight. Okay, that's what a zombie is. As a matter of fact, one of the, uh, the great commentators, uh, Scottish commentator John Eady said, it's a case of death walking. That's, that's what a zombie is. And these are spiritual zombies. That's what he says, that's what Paul says we are. We're spiritual zombies. As a matter of fact, John Gerstner says... Uh, he says, they're an offense to God's nostrils. These decaying spiritual corpses stink. Well, they ought to. They're dead, dead, dead. This is Paul's point. We can't respond to God because spiritually we're dead. We may walk around like zombies do, but there's nothing inside that can or even wants to communicate with the God who is really there. That, he says, is our condition. Now he moves on in verses 1 and 2 to describe how it is that those who are dead in this way live. It's rather disgusting. He says, because we live with no restraint. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Those two yous are not you as individuals, but collectively, okay? All of us. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, the first thing that Paul does is says, you know what, this is... This is the way every single one of us lived. 
We all lived chasing after the things of the world. We all lived tempted and enticed by the devil to such a degree that we sinned regularly. In fact, Paul talks about it in Romans 6 as being slaves to sin. That was our condition. And he describes it as being dead in trespasses and sins. Well, these words mean different things. Trespasses means to slip, to fall, to stumble, to deviate, to go in the wrong direction. Sins is, well, it came originally from the idea of missing the mark with a bow and arrow. And then it meant to to miss the mark or miss the purpose in, in almost any sort of thing. Biblically, it means to miss the mark of God's holiness. To not live up to the standard that he has set for us. And in fact, it's the word Paul most widely uses. 173 times. That is a lot. That word is used more than any other in the New Testament to describe sin. But understand that when Paul talks about trespasses and sins, he's not somehow trying to to separate them and say, well, there's this class and there's this class. What he's doing is he's putting them together to say, boy, there's, you just lived in sin of all kinds, of every kind. And it had such a grip on you that it characterized your life. That's why he uses the term walk. Second, he says, the practice of those who are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins is to walk in this particular way, according to the course of this world, according to the power of the prince of the power of the air. I mean, essentially, he's basically saying, you know what? You were not following the ways of God. You were following your own ways. You were doing things that you knew you should have done, violating your conscience violating the sanctity of others around you. You were breaking the law. You were living as profligates. At every point, you lived in sin. One of my favorite uh, illustrations comes from uh, uh, Graham Greene's uh, Wind in the Willows, because I love the character of Toad. Okay? Toad is just, you know, he's my kind of man. And just, he's got this, this, this air, this attitude about him that and just, I, I, it resonates with me for some reason. But he was an incorrigible lover of cars. Maybe that's part of it. I love cars too. But he was an incorrigible lover of cars. And, but not just that he liked to collect them. He liked to drive them fast. Really fast. Reckless. And he wrecked more cars than he had. And so he would steal cars to drive him that way. Now, he had three friends, okay? He had Mole, and he had Rat, and he had Badger, and, you know, they were really concerned about his condition. And they thought, you know, we need to help Toad here. And so they decided that they would try and help him deal with this this incorrigibility when it came to cars. And so they walked over to his house one day, and they figured they were going to talk some sense into him. Just as they're arriving at the house, they notice this magnificent, big, red car, this brand-new, shiny car sitting out, and they just, they're standing there for a second looking at it, and all of a sudden, Toad comes out. He's got his leathers on. He's got his gauntleted gloves on. He's got his driving goggles on, his hat on backwards. You know, he's got, he's ready to go. Don't forget which. 
His scarf. He had a scarf too. Thank you. See, Terry's an aficionado of uh, Wind in the Willows. At any rate, they just they couldn't believe it, and so they jumped on him. They all jumped on him. They dragged him back into the house. And while Rat is sitting on him, Mole is trying to strip off all these pieces of clothing one bit at a time, hoping eventually to change him from being the terror of the highway back into Toad. And during this whole time, of course, they're, they're talking with him. They're trying to convince him rationally, you shouldn't be like this. And he does what everybody does when they're in that kind of situation. You know what it's like when, when your friends or your family, they, they, they come and uh, they say something that you really don't want to hear. What do you do? You acquiesce, right? Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't do that. Nah, I won't do that anymore. I promise. Okay? Well, that's what he did. And then they pressed him a little bit harder. And then he fessed up. He says, no, in fact, he says, I'm not sorry. It wasn't any folly at all. He says, in fact, it's darn good fun. I love it. Then Badger says to him, then you don't promise never to touch a motor car again? Certainly not. Toad replies emphatically. He says, on the contrary, I faithfully promise that the very first motor car I see, poop, poop, off I go in it. He's finally honest. What's the issue? The issue is that inside of Toad is something that just naturally wants to abuse the cars that he has. To put, it, to put at risk other people who are on the road. Why? Because he doesn't care about them. He cares only about his self-indulgence. And that is precisely what Paul says lies in the practice and at the heart of of every single person. The issue comes from within. This this problem of sin resides in us. And it's always looking for an outlet. Always. Which is precisely what Paul comes to next in verse 3. Because he says it's our very nature. He says, among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In other words, it is our very nature, our very sin nature, that causes us to be like this. And what did we read in Psalm 51 this morning? David says, you know what? From the moment I was conceived... From the moment I was conceived, I was a sinner. I was brought forth in sin. Moses writes in Genesis 6-5 that as the Lord was looking out at the world, he says he saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Why is that? Because of his nature. And what we read in Psalm, uh, uh, from, uh, from uh, Romans 3, where Paul says, None is righteous, not even one. None understands. None seeks for God. All have turned aside, become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. How is that the case? It is the case, Scripture tells us, because when Adam and Eve fell into sin, that Sin 
profoundly changed them and it was passed on to every single person who has ever lived with the exception of Jesus Christ ever since. I mean, if you want to put it in, uh, uh, in today's uh, scientific terms, you could say we have a genetic defect that everybody has. Let's not blame it on our genes, however. Let's not do that. It is a spiritual issue. And the scriptures tell us that it has so powerfully affected us that it's affected everything about us. We are entirely corrupt. Not in degree. We're not as bad as we could be. But we are corrupt in extent. It has touched every part of our lives. I've often used the illustration of, uh, of, of, of let's say you have a, a beaker of pure, clear water. And you take a drop of ink, or food coloring, and you put it in that water. You shake it up just a little bit. What happens? Well, a beaker doesn't turn black, does it? No, it doesn't turn black. Simply because you didn't add enough ink. But it's dispersed throughout every part. Every molecule of that is touched. And that is Paul's point. That from the very get-go, our very nature is that every single part of us has been affected by sin. So whether it's our will or our emotions or our minds our conscience, whatever it is, it has been deeply and profoundly affected by sin. So what Paul is saying here is nothing unique because this is precisely what the scriptures teach from beginning to end. By nature and by practice, we are spiritually lifeless. And because that's the case, we pursue the kinds of lusts that he mentions in verses 2 and 3. This leads us to understand a little bit better the inability that affects us as a result. As a matter of fact, the scriptures are full of pictures of this this inability, if you will. One of them, I think, and probably one of my my favorites, is is Lazarus. Let's say you went to the tomb of Lazarus with Jesus. Okay. Now, when you got to the tomb, let me ask you this. Uh, Would you have approached the tomb and said something like this? Lazarus, you need to come out because Jesus is here to help you. Lazarus, come on now. Come on, Jesus is a wonderful Savior. You know, all you need to do is reach out and he'll save you. Just reach out to him now. Come on, Lazarus. You just take the first step and he'll do the rest. Would you have done that? That's the way we present the gospel sometimes, isn't it? You just do this, and he'll do the rest. Lazarus was dead. Not just spiritually dead. He was physically dead, too. He was dead. And that's why we wouldn't have called upon him and asked him to do that. But when the Lord of glory spoke, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, what happened? Lazarus responded. How was it that a dead man responded? Dead man responded because in the call, God 
gave the ability. He gave the breath that it returned to Lazarus. He gave him a will to respond. He gave him strength to rise up and come out. It is in the call of God that dead men and women can respond in spite of their spiritual death to the life that Christ has won for them. Apart from the quickening voice of Jesus Christ, no man or woman comes forth. Ever. Ever. But when he speaks, they do with certainty. Every one. Furthermore, Paul says that this nature, this sin nature, makes us the objects of God's wrath. Now, lots of people don't take God's wrath very seriously because they don't take their own sin seriously. But God takes it seriously. Because God is a holy God. He is a just God. And he will visit his wrath upon sinners. That is the way he is. When you look at scripture, you see, for instance, 20 different words used for sin, or for wrath, rather, in the Old Testament. Six hundred important references to it there. That means that there is an, there's a deep thread of the wrath of God against sin in Scripture. In the New Testament, there are two words. The first is thumos. Thumos is, is sort of like a, you know, you get really angry, it just springs up, but then dissipates fast. Sort of like a fire through straw, you know, just bang, it's there, it's gone. That's one word. But that is not the word most often used, nor the word that Paul uses here. The word Paul uses here is orge. And that means to grow ripe for something, which really basically indicates that God's wrath against sin is being restrained, but that it is, in fact, a settled indignation. He has determined that he will punish sin. And there's a certain rising up of that anger that one day will rush forth on all who have not clung to Christ. That is the way his wrath will break forth. And so it is that the writer of Hebrews tells us it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because apart from Christ, it is a terrible thing. Every soul outside of Jesus Christ is dead. Everyone. In fact, this desolate image, I think, is, uh, is really well portrayed in Ezekiel chapter 37. You, you know the famous picture of the valley of, of dry bones? It begins with these words. Imagine, imagine being there. Picture this. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them round about and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, Thou knowest. Everyone without Christ 
is dead. They are dry bones. But this table behind me declares, declares the great reality that those who are in Christ are made spiritually alive. That those whose sins are forgiven for his sake need not fear the wrath of God against them and can live in a vital personal relationship with him. That those who have been saved are no longer slaves to sin, but are in fact enabled to live a life pleasing to God. It's worth a trip to the death valley of the soul to be reminded of the greatness of God's deliverance from that place. Brethren, I trust that your your hearts are strangely warmed by the glory of what God has done for you. And if these things seem strange to you, perhaps you need to call upon him yet today and ask him to forgive your sin for Jesus' sake, trusting in no other thing than the fact that he has brought the Savior for that very purpose. Amen. Let's pray. My Father, we are, uh, we are profoundly grateful for the reminder of, of our original condition apart from Christ. Because it helps us not only appreciate the complete inability that we had but the extraordinary kindness and grace that came to us in and through Jesus Christ thank you Father for for encouraging us by these things this day we pray that as we come to this table together that we might uh, um, just reflect on these things more fully and deeply and express our love to you in some way as a result, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.